Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Cameron Jack. He's a lecturer at University of Florida, and we're going to talk about beekeeping. So, Cameron, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me, Richard. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, tell me, how did you get interested in bees? Well, I got interested in bees actually from a young age. My grandpa was a beekeeper. And so I, um, he was also a high school principal. He just used beekeeping to help supplement his income. And I just kind of grew up around honeybees and beekeeping. It was, you know, definitely when I was a kid, it was just a weird thing my family did. It wasn't something I was excited about. But then when I got um, a little bit older and I got into colleges, about the time I kind of got it back into it and uh, started having fun with it again and then decided to go on to graduate school and I knew I wanted to study something and I thought you know why not honeybees and then you know once I started my master's and I started doing honeybee research um, within the first couple of weeks is what I really it set in and said yep this is this is what I want to do for the rest of my life so that's you know, cool been, been years since that point but I've been uh I consider myself pretty fortunate to be able to do something that I really enjoy. So are you a, a researcher or do you uh, lecture as a professor on bees? Yeah, so my job is pretty interesting and I have a unique position. I am the only beekeeping lecturer position that I've ever heard of in the United States. So at the University of Florida, I am technically in a lecturer position, which means I have a 100% teaching appointment. However, as University of Florida, along with a lot of other land-grant universities, they're kind of a three-legged stool of, of research, extension, and instruction. So even though my appointment is 100% instruction, I still have, I'm expected to do a bit of extension, which is like teaching to, you know, non-students, um, so teaching to the public, and the, as well as research. And so I do all three, um, but I'm primarily evaluated on my teaching. And so I, I've spent most of my time focusing on that, but I am a researcher. I do um, honeybee research. A lot of it's with undergraduate students, um, but, but uh, you know, it's, the program's growing and, and there's a lot of people involved in the research now. So if I'm in your class, what, what, what do you teach about bees? What am I going to learn over the semester? <laughs> well, so this is, I'll start by just saying, um, you know, one of the cool things that I've been able to, to do since I am a, a lecturer that's focused on beekeeping is that there are many different courses, which if most universities, at least most land grant universities are going to have at least one beekeeping course, there are a handful throughout the country that might even have two and I teach seven. Um, this is so it's just totally different than than what everybody else does in the country where we're actually trying to have students that they don't just learn the warm and fuzzies of beekeeping. They actually know all the nitty gritty uh, from, you know, the evolution of beekeeping throughout the years, um, the basics of honeybee biology, um, the underlining theory of uh 
of different beekeeping management techniques and practices to all the ways that you can make money with bees. So, I mean, we, we, throughout all these different courses, I mean, we really do touch on all these subjects and we're trying to make students that can actually go into the world and be beekeepers. I mean, like I said, everywhere else, you kind of, if you take one beekeeping class, you're just going to be kind of getting just a, a small nibble of what, you know, is actually there. You, I'm trying to get people to feast on the whole table of, of beekeeping, right? So you're going to learn lots of different things. So I don't know, can you give me a, a few snippets of some of the areas, like the history of beekeeping? Sure. Can you tell me a little bit about that first, and then we'll ask you about some other stuff. Yeah. So in my beekeeping one class, we start with a little bit of the history of beekeeping. And this is, I mean, we're going to start all the way back to, you know, ancient times where we have cave paintings that you can see in, in Spain of somebody climbing a ladder, trying to collect honey. And you can see what looks like um, they're, they're holding some kind of uh, smoker, some way to smoke the bees um, to calm them so that they can cut off a chunk of wax and take that honeycomb with them, right? Um, so we're, we kind of start with that basic of the early interactions, early human interactions with honeybees um, to, you know, some of the Egyptians that are keeping honeybees in clay pots to different styles of honeybees that are maintained in log gums, um, gum trees, all the way to the modernization of of what we would maybe think now of a bee of a hive that is a wooden box that has that actually has very specific dimensions um, and has these interchangeable pieces that are called frames where the bees will build their comb and that allows you as a beekeeper to move them and that kind of change took place in the 1800s. And then kind of after that, it's just been a little bit of modernization of including, you know, different techniques to uh, identify when the honeybees might be having a problem, um, like remotely, and maybe even some like drone technology to be able to fly uh, through an apiary. An apiary is a place where you're keeping lots of honeybees and maybe to, to look and sense what the uh, colonies are how strong they are based on infrared technology. I mean, so there's truthfully beekeeping hasn't changed for the masses very much since the 1800s. But I mean, there are, you know, with increasing technology, there are some ways that we can do a little bit more modern, uh, more precision agriculture, if you will. You said that the um, frames and the um, the box that the government has certain dimensions. Why is that so it could be transported in standard or is there another reason? Um, well, really, it, it comes down to honeybee biology. Um, it's an understanding that bees will, they're looking for certain cavity sizes to be able to make their nest. And and actually, really interestingly, I mean, the ideal cavity size that bees were going to be looking for is about 40 liters of volume. Um, that's the size that they are looking for. And so um, that's about the size of, of a standard Langstroth hive. Langstroth is is the uh, the beekeeper who sort of identified that and started building those removable frame type hives. And even actually, those removable frames are really important. Um, they have they're very precise in their own way. That there's a concept called bee space. I mean, the bees will have to 
be able to move inside of that hive. If, if there's too little space, then the bees just bump into each other and they can't really move around. If there's too much space, the bees don't like that either. And then they start filling it out. They, they create more wax. And so actually the magic number for honeybees inside of a hive is three eighths of an inch. So that I, I make all my students memorize that three eighths of an inch is the magic number of bee space. That's the above that the bees are going to fill it with wax. If it gets too below three eighths of an inch, the bees are bumping into each other and they just fill that space with um, plant resins and it's called propolis. Um, So they're collecting like tree saps basically and, and plant saps and they just fill that cover that space. They don't, the bees are very, very specific. I mean, honeybees are, are very uh, I guess practical in a way where they're not going to allow any dead space that it's going to be all functional. Why do you think they want this particular spacing? Why do they try to get it? Why is that the sweet spot for them? Well, I, I mean, again, with in terms of their biology, you have to, uh, what's really cool and what's just so fascinating about honeybees is that they are considered a super organism. So one individual bee can't survive on its own. I mean, they have to function together as a group. And so when you think of honeybees and their biology, you kind of, you can't really consider each individual bee as its own organism. I mean, they are their own organism, but you, we call it a super organism because really the whole animal is the whole colony. And so this animal has to, for in, in order for it to, you know, have proper respiration. So it's bringing air in and out of the hive. Um, they need to have their right size in order for them to defend themselves against predators. Uh, because think about it. I mean, Bees are out there making honey. Uh, they, they themselves are good protein for a lot of animals. And they're also a sweet treat for a lot of animals. So there's a lot of, a lot of animals that want to get into their hive and steal their honey or eat their, or eat the bees themselves. And so they have to be able to defend themselves. And they just generally over time, I mean, evolutionarily, they, this, about this size of bee cavity, about 40 liters, if they occupy that size, they are nice and healthy. If they, start getting too big, then that's totally fine. They're going to swarm. That's how the animal of the superorganism reproduces. It's just a swarm is when you have one hive. So one colony becomes two colonies. So they basically split and uh, that's the superorganism reproduction. And so that, that size of 40 liters is just, I think evolutionary it just helps them be successful in all these different aspects. How many bees will accommodate a 40 liter space that's properly spaced at three eighths of an inch? Yeah, there's a bit of um, a range that, that you might find, expect to see in, in a hive this size. Generally speaking, people will te- typically estimate a, a, a hive this size to be about 20,000 bees. Now, as a beekeeper, I mean, we're, we're manipulating things. We're manipulating the bees to do uh, basically what, what we want. Right. So we're using their own biology in favor of what we want. So typically the bees will in, in the wild, wild honeybees, they're going to occupy this space. And when they've maximized that space, then they are then going to swarm and until, and so they're sending, um, you know, half of those bees are leaving the nest and then all of a sudden they can have, they have more space again to kind of fill out. As a beekeeper, we want, if, if my goal as a beekeeper was to have a hive that have a colony that's going to produce a lot of honey for me, then I'm going to want to increase the, that size of 
of that colony. And so what I could do is I could take one of those 40 liter boxes and I could stack another 40 liter box on top of it. And all of a sudden I've just given them a whole bunch of room um, to continue to grow. And at that point I can even start stacking more boxes of that are just meant for those bees to fill with honey. And there are ways to manipulate that um, as a beekeeper, but then they start filling that those top boxes full of honey. And then later on I can, when the, I guess when the big nectar flow is over, then I can, you know, take some of that honey and, and harvest it and, and sell it myself. So, I mean, there are definitely beekeeping is all about, I guess, manipulating the bees based on their biology to get a specific outcome. So it sounds like there's some kind of quorum sensing going on. You said the the high of that will result in 40 liters is not always the same number, but it probably sticks to a certain range. The head of the bees know, okay, it's time to split off. Is that by the amount of certain structures or the amount of honey or the amount of bees? Or what do you think are the signals that cause them to say to do one thing versus another? Yeah, this is a whole area of research and and studying honeybee behaviors is really uh, interesting. Um, But there are chemical signals. Uh, So the queen, um, this, we tend to think of the queen as the one who's in charge and, and she's not really in charge. I mean, they're very much a democracy where the workers themselves are the ones who are making the decisions, but the queen is a really important uh, insect in the, in the colony, of course, because she's the one who's laying all these eggs, but she's also giving off pheromones um, that can have some bigger effects. So there are pheromones that will cause the bees to kind of gather around her. And there's also, so pheromone communication can play a role in when they decide to, to swarm. There's also that, just that physical touch that all these bees are just congested. They're constantly bumping into one another. That's a, a strong cue that, hey, we've got to start preparing to swarm. There's also climate-related cues um, and, and weather-related cues for the bees to know that this is about time that we need to start preparing to, to swarm. So there's, there's just a whole lot of um, factors that are influencing their decision-making. So what does it look like if, I, you know, if I, I'm able to look at a cross-section of a typical 40-liter hive? What will I see and where? Do things always occur in the same place, the same amounts? Like, is the honey on top or the bottom? Where's the queen, et cetera? Yeah, they they will, for the most part, be very uniform. Um, so it, what you would expect. So if we were out in, in a apiary together and we decided to open the lid of one of these hives, if we just look down, what we're going to expect to see is actually kind of a, a spherical shape, almost about a basketball-sized ball of bees, right? So towards the middle, it's it's kind of dense, it's kind of round, They tie, um, but towards the outer frames, the outer parts of the box, you would expect to see fewer bees. And what you're going to see is if we started a standard hive that most beekeepers are going to use in the United States is going to be about 10 frames. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And so we pull out that center frame, we would expect to see um, a, a lot of capped brood. So this is kind of what we would consider our brood area. Um, and the and brood is going to basically be our immature bees. And brood can is going to include all the eggs, the larva, and the pupa. And then once they uh, emerge from their cells as adults, then they are no longer brood. Um, they're just workers or they're just adults, right? So 
but towards the center of the hive is is considered the brood area and that's where the where you would expect to find a queen because she's there i mean she basically just has one job that a queen is is less of a ruler and she's more of like a machine like a tractor i mean her job is to just crank out those eggs and so she's going around um, finding empty cells and she does this kind of in a spiral pattern so she's not just going around willy-nilly she's she's kind of finding a, a location where she can start laying and she kind of just starts spiraling out, just laying eggs and all these cells until she's covered a full frame. And so towards the outer edges of the frames, you might expect towards the corners. So think of a rectangle. That's what the frame that has the comb on it. The the center of that is going to be all brood um, towards the the corners are going to the, at least the upper corners are going to contain a bit of honey and then kind of around in between the honey and the brood, there's going to usually be kind of a a band of pollen that is stored. So, I mean, that's what the bees need. They need, they're going to need honey for the energy. They need pollen for the protein. And then you've got all the immature bees that are being taken care of. So that's, that's what you would expect to see if you looked inside of a hive. And it's, like I said, it's going to be very, uh, if, if you don't see those things and in exactly the places that you would expect to see them, then you know something's wrong with that colony. They're very uniform in the way that they do this. Well, what I see at the top, like if I pull out the trays, there's 10 of them, the top and the bottom tray, I would probably get a small circle of, of honeycomb. And I guess the middle trays, you get much wider circles of honeycomb. Is that what you're saying? I guess if it depends on maybe if you have two boxes, if we're talking about two boxes, I mean, those bees are going to fill up as much space as you give them. If we want to encourage specifically honey production, where we just want, we just want them to fill the entire space with honey, then we use some, the beekeepers can use a device that's called a queen excluder. That's just going to basically trap the queen down below where we want her to lay, but it will prevent her. The they're basically, it's like a slotted rack um, or like a slotted metal sheet that will allow workers to move through. But the queen is a little bit bigger and she won't be able to fit through the slats. And then, and then, so at the top, that's where the bees are going to just store their honey. So I, I guess what I was describing before was the brood nest where we would expect to see, if you're looking at a frame, you would expect, expect to see the center filled with brood. Then you would see a little bit of honey and a little bit of pollen. But in a large colony where we are encouraging um, honey production, then you would see in those upper boxes, every single frame would just be full of honey, ideally, if there's a good you know, flow. Does that make sense? I was imagining like I was imagining like the beehive hairdos from the 1950s. I pictured a beehive in my mind. I don't know if they are, but they seem like a big, like sort of rotund sphere that's fatter in the middle. Yeah. That, like like why not make a box that's that shape? Like so that, have people played with different shapes. That's a really interesting point that you bring up, Richard. And I, I, you know what, I, I think maybe in my narrow mindedness of being so focused, I, I kind of forgot about that image. So, so what you're describing is called a skep. Now in the United States, skeps are actually illegal. I I mean, you're, it's, you're not allowed to maintain bees there without a permit. Um, And the reason for that is, is I mean, that, that is the kind of the old, um, kind of the old world style of, of beekeeping, but that was at a time, um, bees were managed there 
and, or these were kept in those skips basically because um, that was the way people kept bees uh, maybe a couple hundred years ago. They, it was more of um, it was not a management style so much as it was a way to just encourage bees to be on your property. And then every year or so you would, you would basically crack open that basket that, and then harvest the honey and you would, probably damage the hive or damage the colony significantly, they would either leave or they would stay there and repair their nest. And the reason that's illegal now is because um, apiary inspection services. So most states have an apiary and well, maybe not most, but a lot of states have apiary inspectors where their job is to look for specific diseases um, in honeybee colonies. And they can't do that in those types of colonies or those types of hives without the risk of killing the colony. And so that's why you would have to have a specific or special permit to be able to maintain your bees in that type of a hive. So, so to, to your question of do have people played around with the different shapes and sizes of, of honeybee hives, the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, part of the fun part of, about beekeeping and something that kind of unifies beekeepers is that they like to tinker and they like to to play around with things and and so you do see uh, people a lot of backyard beekeepers i mean they're going to be playing around with all sorts of different hives sizes and shapes um but yeah like why why can't i make a um a series of trays that just gets like round trays with a handle on them that are that gets smaller and it, it looks exactly like a skep, but it's just trays you could pull out, you know, that get smaller and smaller as you go to the top. Or why can't they make a pyramid one with like a gigantic tray at the bottom, maybe a queen excluder. And then as you go up, the trays get smaller and smaller and it pyramids up to a point and see what happens with the hive. Yeah, I will. I mean, it, it's it's the way that the bees, again, biology, they they don't build their their combs horizontally. They build them vertically. And so if you have... Uh, but I mean, to your point, you could have vertical um, frames within a skep, but 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 you you wouldn't really be able to remove them. Um, that's not how those skeps are built. Those skeps are just a basket, basically. So if you to to open them, the bees are going to they're they're trying to seal everything kind of together in these sheets of wax. And if you were just to open that up, it's going to basically crack all the wax and and destroy and kill a lot of brood and. And then all of a sudden honey is going to run everywhere. And so that's the beautiful part of the Langstroth hive with these removable frames that are built in a box and they are organized this way is that um, then a beekeeper, all they have to do is lift the lid and the lid, uh, the bees are not connecting their wax to the lid because that would create a problem. Cause then every time you open the lid, then they would, that wax would get ripped up and, and cause a lot of headache and probably a mess for the beekeeper. So they're, they're building wax combs within, I guess, a wooden rectangle. So they're, their bees are filling in that dead space within that wooden rectangle. And then, so all the beekeeper has to do is grab that rectangle and then they, they can then manipulate the wax comb. So it's, it's one of those, there's lots of different styles. Of course, there, there are other types of hives, but when you think of beekeeping and modern beekeeping, almost everybody in the world is using a Langstroth hive if they're interested in production. It's so just I guess the Langstroth hive is, is standardized. It works. It allows access without destroying the, you know, the hive. And it's like a happy medium, I guess. Maybe it's not the, 
ideal shape for bees, but it's good enough where it can accomplish all these things you mentioned. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's a lot of it has to do with convenience for the beekeeper. Um, because if, if I have bees and I'm, if I'm as a beekeeper, if I'm disrupting them significantly or destroying some of their comb, I mean, the bees were going to have to take time out of their schedule, I guess, too, to fix those mistakes. Right. And if I have bees that are there, I mean, as a beekeeper, you kind of think of your bees as your employees, right? If I'm creating more work for them, then they're not going to be productive for me. So, so, I mean, we're just trying to keep them happy and keep them and uh, make conditions to be ideal enough for them to be productive for the beekeeper. So in the wild, I'm, I'm picturing like a beehive and like in the knot of a tree or, you know, in the eaves of a house, like what, what kind of structures do they build in the wild? Do they look like skeps? Are they, you know, semi-spherical? No. So yeah, that's, that's a really good question, Richard. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm going to blame Winnie the Pooh for this one. Okay. Cause I feel like, <laughs> I feel like, you know, Winnie the Pooh, he kind of ruined this image. And it, it's so funny that you say that because this is kind of the image that people have. And you see this all yep. the time on yep. cartoons is these kind of the, that, basket shaped um where it's kind of that uh, beehive hairdo shape that's just hanging from a tree and winnie the pooh sticking his hand in there and he's pulling out this honey but you know in reality if you see that hanging from a tree and you put your hand in there you're gonna you've just stuck your hand into a hornet's nest right you're gonna be in a big world of hurt honeybees in the in the wild they're still they're looking for cavities so there's there are different species of honeybees i should say um, the vast majority of them are cavity nesters, which means they are looking for a, a small cavity. Maybe it's a hollow of a tree. Maybe it's somebody's water meter box, right? I mean, they're looking for a, a cavity of a certain size with of a certain entrance, and they're going to always basically create their uh, combs as wax vertical sheets. So they're always hanging down vertically. And again, you know, they get to about that size. Uh, Each species is a little bit different that we only have one species here in the United States and that's Apis mellifera and Apis mellifera colonies are going to, you know, get to about that size of about, you know, 15 to 20,000 bees. And at about that point, they start filling out the space in a normal, you know, a normal setting. Um, And then they're going to start swarming and, and bees are, they're going to try to stay productive themselves. I mean, they're going to try to collect and uh, create as much honey as they can, um, but it's it's for food storage. And and so they're they basically honeybees have two main purposes, and that is to survive through the winter by having enough food storage, which is honey. And their other goal is to reproduce, and and so they reproduce in the spring, and if they've survived the winter, so that that's kind of their two basic biological needs for honeybees is to survive the winter and to reproduce. I don't know what what nuances of beekeeping. I, so I spoke to another bee person, and they said that you can have bees for honey production. Some are pollinators that they'll take out to like you know California for almonds, and you know down south for blueberries and stuff like that. I guess some are just to make queens, and there's a whole bunch of different things you can do. But what um, what area of bees really like is a mystery to you still that you really want to learn more about that we can talk about? Yeah. Um, so every bee, honeybee researcher has different fields, I guess. Like like you said, I mean, there are lots of different ways as an industry 
that beekeepers can make money. And you just mentioned uh, some of them, I guess my interests personally have, have lied heavily in um, the management of honeybee pests and diseases, which is a really big problem in regards to honeybee health. I mean, there are um, ectoparasites that vector and transmit lots of viruses. Um, there are, you know, microorganisms that are in the guts of the honeybees that cause uh, lots of issues. There are um, you know, other parasites and, and pests that get into the hive that just create havoc within the hive. And so my largest area of focus uh, is really on controlling honeybee pests and, and to some degree, the pathogens that these pests uh, carry and transmit. Um, and this is an area that's just so difficult. And this is not just true for honeybees. I mean, I, I would say, you know, for agriculture in general, this is the hardest part for so many people is like, is figuring out how to control uh, these, these pests that become resistant to different treatments and, and managing for that. And, and I would even say, you know, for, for honeybees specifically, it kind of adds a whole nother level of difficulty because you for a lot of these pests, you're you're trying to control either a mite or another insect. So you're controlling an arthropod that's on another arthropod. And so everything that's toxic to the pest is very likely to be toxic to the bee itself. And so it's really, uh, it's about finding that balance and it's about finding um, treatments that, that work well, not just chemical treatments, but non-chemical treatments and, and finding ways to integrate the two in a way that is effective at uh, keeping these pest populations low and increasing. Well, well, what are the main pests? I've heard of like Varroa mites, but yeah. what are the top pests that, you know, cause problems? So honeybees uh, in the United States, well, around the world, generally, um, most honeybee researchers will consider Varroa, which you mentioned, which is a, a parasitic mite, which transmits lots of viruses. They consider this pest to be the number one threat to honeybee health. And I wholeheartedly agree. Um, and this is a, a really difficult pest to control. These mites are, are small. I mean, they're big enough for the naked eye that we can see them, but they are um, actually fairly big compared to the bodies of the bees and, and they can cause a lot of damage and really increase the virus loads inside of a honeybee hive. But there's other things in the United States we have uh, in the last you know, 20 years have had to deal with uh, a pest that's called the small hive beetle. And this beetle um, doesn't necessarily, they can, their honey, the beetles will get into the colony and, and lay eggs and the larva can start consuming the bee directly. But what really causes the damage um, from small hive beetles is that their larva will start consuming all the pollen and the honey and what they, they have a yeast that's associated with their bodies, which causes all the honey to ferment and not like in a, we're making mead kind of fermentation, like a really gross, toxic, disgusting um, uh, fermentation that, that is toxic for the honeybees. And so it's, they, they can be a really big, uh, issue and other other pests um, that can be a pretty big issue for honeybee colonies would be wax moths. These pests are kind of considered secondary pests where they come in when a, a honeybee colony is kind of weak. The wax moth larva will then just start chewing kind of like Pac-Man. They just go in a straight line, just chomping through all the wax comb and they break down the wax and make a big mess inside the hive. And, you know, that's a, an issue for 
um, honeybee colonies, but if they are big and strong, they can usually keep wax moths out. But, but truly wax moths are more of a frustration for the beekeeper because if I have a big, strong colony one year and I put on those honey supers on that, that colony and I harvest that honey, well then later I'm going to kind of stick those boxes, those extra boxes in my shed. And if those wax moths find that, that box within just a few weeks, they will consume all that wax. And that's a big problem because now my bees, instead of being productive, when it comes time to, to store and make honey, now they have to just replace all that wax. So, so there's lots of, lots of uh, pests that, that bees are dealing with, and it's, it's a big struggle to figure out how to control them properly. Are there hives set up with like a whole bunch of cameras in them or, you know, I've heard from an ant guy literally today that they can put a tiny a piece of paper onto the thorax of ants. I wonder, can you can you tag bees so you could follow them when they're moving around the hive or they're out and about? Is there any way to, to like monitoring a hive, you know, on the inside and outside or the inside? How do you do that? And can you tell like when a, a pest or a pathogen starts to make its way into a hive and affect it, what happens and what's the sequence of events? Yeah, there's a lot of people that are kind of working to that end. I would say that it's it's very difficult to figure out to to monitor the hive that closely that you're detecting the moment there's any nest intruder. Um, but what you can do is you you can put a, a camera inside of a hive. It's just you have to think of there it's a cavity. It's going to be dark, and so you don't really without you know, certain technologies, you're not going to get a very good image, but more likely what, if you're going to monitor bees, um, some, you can radio tag them where you can actually put on a microchip onto the back of a bee. And then every time that bee leaves the nest, they run through um, a little magnet that has like a clock and it will like basically stamp when that bee has come in or out of the colony. Um, you could even put radio or put a little radio tracker on a bee and see where individual bees go. Um, those ones are a little bit big and bulky. And so, you know, for certain honeybee research studies, people have done that. Um, but you wouldn't have that bee probably last very long with that big <laughs> antenna sticking off its back. Um, so, I mean, there's lots of ways that people are trying to get creative and, and learn uh, and to identify problems remotely. One, um, there's a group of people that are um, working to use uh, sound. So different recording devices um, based on the bees vibrations that will detect if there is a problem inside the hive. That technology is still very much in early development and, and no, despite maybe some claims, there's not a lot of, of evidence to support that that is um, really established well at this point, but there's promise there. And, and so there are some ways that people are trying to monitor their hives maybe a little bit more with technology rather than actually physically entering into the hive to do their checks. Well, you said earlier that bees are like a superorganism, a swarm organism. So how do they tend to react when these moths come in and start chewing up the hive or, you know, a bee brings in varroa mites and they start, you know, proliferating and hopping from bee to bee? Like how do they tend to, to react as a whole, as a collective? Or do they, you know, if certain bees are affected, they say, all right, let's quarantine them and get rid of them, forget about them, we'll make more. What, what's the behavior? 
Yeah, um, it's this is a really cool area of research as well. And they're going to react differently. I mean, hives are going to react, or colonies are going to react differently based on genetics and based, of course, on on the type of pests that might be entering that that nest. But uh, so let's let's take varroa as an example. So you you have this mite that's it's fairly small, um, but if it's on the body of a bee and it enters into a hive that might, might transfer from bee to bee. Well, some bees are going to be more genetically predisposed to be hygienic and, and some part of that is hygienic behaviors for some bees. I mean, will include grooming and you might see a bee that just goes absolutely bonkers. They, they're rubbing their antenna. They're, they're using their legs to rub all over their body, trying to knock off this mite, but there are some bees that won't do that. And, and so they tend to hang out on those bees. There are uh, specific uh, researchers and beekeepers that are breeding bees to be for that hygienic quality, for that grooming behavior. Um, There are, but you actually do see some level of social immunity in bees where, uh, I mean, we're, we're kind of facing this right now as, as a world uh, issue of, of COVID, but we're supposed to be social distancing, right? So honeybees kind of do this too. Um, What's really interesting to see is there's been uh, plenty of different studies that have, have observed that as bees are impacted uh, with a particular virus or some kind of pathogen, oftentimes they will leave the nest and die away from the nest. So they basically, it's, it's like a self-sacrifice for the benefit of the whole colony. If they become infected, they oftentimes will just leave. And bees uh, themselves are very hygienic. So if they detect a problem, they might just force a bee out and and get rid of it because they want to try to get that pathogen or get that pest out of the hive. But some of them are more easy to get rid of than others. Um, small hive beetles, for instance, are, are big enough and strong enough that the bees can't really force them around very well. And so they will try to trap them and push them into corners and but you know the the beetles and the dynamic between beetles and honeybees are really interesting and and beetles have ways to kind of get out and trick their captors it's it's all just really fascinating interesting uh interesting stuff so why i i love honeybee research because i get to learn about all this cool stuff so even though bees are a swarm organism and they they can't live alone they seem to uh i guess it's i don't know they is their behavior more of like sacrificing themselves for the hive integrity and the hive health, or is it more of a selfish behavior? No, it's it's very much uh, maybe a, a colony level behavior, a, a super organism. I, I, so super organism is that term that the bees, they they honeybees specifically, they can't survive on their own. So so they have to do. Uh, they have to function together as a, as a colony. But, but what's interesting is, I mean, maybe we don't know exactly the processes and obviously we don't know what the thought process is of, of each individual bee, but there is some kind of trigger, some kind of reaction that will tell that bee to just get out of there for the safety of, of everybody else for the colony. And I mean, there's, you know, branches of, of research that are focused on social insect behaviors Um, because this is not necessarily just unique to honeybees we see this in other social insects as well but but yeah there's definitely a relation there for for social insects to to be very altruistic in their behavior do you help people that are in the class to i guess is is part of their experience like lab work where 
you know, you have an apiary on site and they all go and they, you know, they do like, they observe the bees live and they, they see what they do or, you know, hopefully you have that, I guess, at the school. Is that available? Yeah. So that is, um, some of the work that I do is, is we do here at the University of Florida in the Honeybee Research and Extension Lab, we do have a uh, apiary that's here on site. The students can come. They can, uh, for one of my classes is a practical beekeeping class. And so this is the, the class where the students really get that hands-on beekeeping experience where we start off with the students building the equipment. I give them a package of bees. They you know, install that package of bees. They have to maintain those colonies for a few weeks or for about six weeks for a semester um, during the summer. And they are doing all sorts of different beekeeping activities. But we also do, I mean, I also have a course that is a research course where students are basically learning science, uh, how to conduct research in a scientific way. But we are using honeybees as a model organism. And as a class, we're doing research projects um, using the honeybees. But we also have this lab where I, from all of my different classes, I'm inviting students um, to come and participate with us in different research projects. And so they get the experience to to conduct research. They get experience uh, working honeybee colonies and working in the field. So there's there's lots of lots of different ways for, for students to get involved and get both the laboratory skills and the uh, field skill skills that are necessary. And really, uh, you know, in all types of research, I, I totally realize that the vast majority, I mean, I teach about 400 students a year. I totally realize that almost none of these students are going to go on to be beekeepers themselves necessarily, but they're getting the skills necessary to go out and be successful. And, and especially in the, in the sciences. Um, and well, so, at least they have a realistic expectation of what bees are like and not from a cartoon or watching that stupid bee movie with Jerry Seinfeld, you know, they actually know what bees are like and that's much better. At least people aren't ignorant about them and you know, they'll appreciate them more. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if nothing else, they have that better worldview of how the world works. And, and, and truthfully, I can tell you, you know, so many times I hear from students where they were really nervous of round bees kind of uh, before taking the class. And then all of a sudden they just have, are filled with an appreciation and wonder. Um, and I still feel that way all the time. I, I mean, just today I've, so I've been doing this for years and just today I, I was walking by a hive um and there were bees all out in the front and, and they were flying around, buzzing around excitedly. And I just stayed for just a few minutes, just watching those bees. And so there's totally, uh, there's that wonderment that I hope to leave students with and, and appreciation for, for honeybees and for insects in general, truly. Well, very good. Cameron, what's the best way for people to learn more about your teaching and, you know, during the, the COVID stuff, are you doing any Zoom type classes and can the public pay for classes from you? Like, how do they find out more about your work? Yeah, absolutely. And um, you can go to ufhoneybeelab.com um, and that's going to have a, not just the art classes, that's going to have information about different extension resources that we have, different research that we're conducting. But then you can also find information about teaching and, and the different courses that we offer. Um, people can actually 
you know, contact me directly as well to uh, part of my position at the University of Florida within the entomology and nematology department is I, I actually coordinate all of our department's um, online uh, distance education courses, and then I can help them to uh, to find different certificate online certificate programs. Um, I can help them identify if they just want to take specific courses. I can kind of direct them on how to register, um, and so there's there's lots of different ways to kind of get some of this uh, access to these resources and and education and and be able to participate in these classes. So I, I would really hope yeah. that you know, some of the listeners to this program would, would be interested in that and, and, um, and hopefully we'll be able to, to take some of these courses in the future. Well, very good, Cameron. Thanks for coming on the podcast and uh, I appreciate it. Some great info. Well, thanks for having me, Richard. I appreciate the invite. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.